My name is Greg, and um, you know, welcome to Redemption the Summer, which means that you know there's 13 weeks, 13 Sundays in the summer, and that means there's 13 different speakers on 13 different uh, books of the Bible, right? No, just kidding. Um, sometimes it might feel like that, but we actually are getting back to our series on the Book of Acts, and so um, we get to a passage where we ended last, is in chapter 18, verse 23. So I'm going to dig into 24. And go through part of chapter 19. But there's a point here. And if we talk a little bit about kind of what the main idea is from week to week. And you'll see at the top of your notes there. True believers have been changed by the Holy Spirit. That's kind of where Luke is going to take us today. But I'm going to tell you a story that kind of illustrates and drives this point home. And it's a, it's a tragic story. Um, years ago... Uh, when I was a pastor of student ministries in Indianapolis, one of my students, I think he was probably a junior at the time, gave me a call. He was working at a local pizza place, and he said, I'm involved in a conversation sharing my faith with a guy who is one of my assistant managers. He was about 20 years old. And he said, we've talked, but he's got some questions. I can't figure out how I want to answer these questions, and so can I just... The two of us come in, and maybe you can answer some of these questions. And so, absolutely, of course. So they, they come in, and we sit down, we start talking, and um, yeah, he just kind of worked through a, little, a few little things here and there. But as I'm hearing his story, I'm realizing, and as I ask questions, that he's kind of tracking. I mean, he's, he's agreeing with the message of the gospel. And as I'm asking him questions, and he, he acknowledges he's never really trusted Christ, but he knows he's of his own sin. He's grasped the idea that Christ died on the cross to remove the penalty from our sin and that through faith in him, we can be reconciled with God. And so, have you done that before? No. All right, so do you want to declare to God your, your new faith in him? And, and we could do that through a prayer. And he said, yeah, I, I want to do that. And so, we pray. And he prays, and it's, a, it's like a sinner's prayer if you're familiar with that. And I pray for him, and, you know, we, we conclude our prayer time, and then I ask him some questions about maybe getting together and kind of following up on this. And he's really kind of non, non-committal. Our time ends, they leave, and I remember sitting there going, that was weird. And I remember this kind of this impression I had in my mind was like, it didn't take now, that that kind of resonates with you, what I mean by that. It's like, I never really sensed the Holy Spirit grabbing a hold of this guy. It just felt like he was going through the motions. And like, well, why would he do that? It didn't make any sense to me. Over the next week or ten days, I discover from this student that this guy quit the job, and so he kind of moved on, but he had no way of getting a hold of him. Um, didn't know how to yeah, so he was kind of like, never heard from him again. So I was going to, going to pray for him that God would bring people into his life, but essentially it's like, okay, God, we're just going to trust you with this guy. About a year goes by, and I get a call from the same student. And he says, have you read the front page of the Indianapolis Star? We're living in India at the time. I said, no, I haven't. Uh, he said, you need to read it. Remember that guy, James? We sat down and talked with him in your office. Yeah, I do. He's in this article. You, you really need to read this article. 
horrific story. There's a triple homicide that had taken place the day before. Three guys were arrested. It looked pretty obvious that they were all guilty. And he's named as one of the defendants. He's this guy. So you kind of think, well, I've, I've got a little bit of a relationship with him. I mean, should I go see him? Um, no idea what to do. It's like you're just kind of like, yeah, let's see what happens. And so I call the authorities and do whatever I need to do. And I go see him before the trial begins. And it's just like what you see on TV or the movies. And, you know, it's like you walk in this room and there's this security glass. And the guys on the other side, you can't hear. But you pick up the phone and you talk to him. And he was willing to meet with me. So we talked for maybe 10 or 12 minutes. But I remember kind of going, hmm, like nothing's happening here spiritually. I prayed for him and kind of walked away. Again, it's incredibly tragic. But I remember thinking, the same guy that walked into my office that one day was the same guy who walked out and was the same guy that I sat across from just a moment ago. Nothing had changed. I think what Luke wants to communicate, one of the most important things he wants to communicate from the passage we're going to look at today, as well as several other passages, is this. There can be times that people will confess Jesus. They'll say the right words. And they may even pray kind of a sinner's prayer. I wonder if he'd have been, if he'd have asked me that day, would I baptize him, would I would have not? I probably would. And we'll see in the book of Acts, there's sometimes that the church goes ahead and baptizes people and then in retrospect realizes they're not believers. They're not saved. But one of the things that we'll see as we look and study at the book of Acts It's almost like Luke writes his gospel that Jesus is on center stage. And he gets to the book of of Acts, and the Holy Spirit is on center stage. And the question that's continually asked over and over and over again, and and disciples and the apostles and others representing the church will continually ask, has the Holy Spirit changed that person? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And that's the crux of this message today. It's going to be one of those self-reflection, but it also may be reflecting on somebody you care deeply about. That maybe they've walked through and it looks like on the surface, but maybe nothing has really happened in the subsequent weeks, months, years, and you go, are they really? belonging to Christ. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk you through uh, the book of Acts, uh, somewhat of a review, not for the review's sake, but most importantly to kind of go, I want you to see some things that Luke is trying to communicate over and over again so that when we get to the passage we're going to look at today, you will know already what the argument that Luke is making. And you'll come to the same conclusions because he's setting that uh, he's setting up a, a, a pattern for us to look at. And so, yeah, I mean, the reality is that we started this series on Luke in April of 2018. So it's a little bit hard to keep track of what's been happening for the last over a year. And so I want to kind of help you see that. But let's just start right here. 
Luke itself writes the gospel, and he writes Acts to the same person. And what he says in Luke chapter 1, again, the gospel Luke, he's talking about this guy named Theophilus. And he says that you may have certainty concerning things that you have been taught. And so when he gets to the book of Acts, he's doing the same thing. He's saying, I want you to have certainty what's going on. And so if you want to turn to Acts chapter 1, let me lay it out for you, a little bit of kind of preliminary thoughts about this. You see what happens is in chapter 1, verse 4, Luke is going to kind of set the stage for what we should expect for the rest of the book. He's quoting Jesus. He's talking about Jesus when he says, And while staying with them, he, meaning Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, is this. You heard from me, for John baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That promise given by the Father of sending his Holy Spirit is a promise for believers, to believers, to new believers, to become believers. I just confused you. Sorry. So it's a promise that God would send his Spirit to do that, to work in people's lives. And so then he says in verse 8, in addition to that, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's telling us this. You're going to hear story from me, Theophilus, story after story after story after story, of how the Holy Spirit uses his people to bring salvation to groups of people and new groups of people and new groups of people that are unlike, oftentimes unlike you. Luke is a a Gentile. And so, in essence, he is one of those people that eventually it took place in his life. And along the way, we will see how the church wrestled with this question about what is salvation involved? What, what, how is someone saved? And who is saved? And who is not? So with that in mind, we see that this event that he talks about, the initial one in chapter 1, verse uh, 5, takes place in chapter 2, verse 1. So I turn there. Like I said, I'm going to kind of, kind of go through several different things till we get to our passage to lay a groundwork. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrives, Pentecost, okay, that word simply means 50. It was to, uh, to signal a festival that the Jews would celebrate 50 days after the prior one, essentially. And so Pentecost, meaning 50, um, happened to also correspond with the 50 days after the Resurrection Sunday. And so... This event, obviously, took place on Pentecost, and so there are a number of people who identify themselves as Pentecostals, and because of what takes place here. And it says, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is that promise. And so now what's going to happen is salvation is going to come to a number of individuals. And we're going to eventually get to this passage in chapter 18. And I'm going to tell you what we're going to see in 18. Five things that are very, very important. Number one is this. Evidence of salvation matters. It matters dearly, importantly. It's incredibly how important it is to see evidence. It matters. And 
the New Testament church looks for that over and over again. Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit that's come upon an individual? Secondly, doctrine matters. Doctrine is just, it's simply that word. It means what do we hold in terms of our beliefs about a particular topic, about a particular issue? What you believe about who you are matters dearly. What you believe about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about faith, about sin, all that matters greatly. It's a matter of life and death. Thirdly, discipleship matters. What we mean by that is that we'll see that everybody, everybody needs someone to invest in them. To ask the difficult questions, to ask the challenging questions, to come alongside and help others grow. In addition to that, you might be someone who needs to do that for somebody else as well. Fourth, understanding the work of the Holy Spirit matters. I'm going to lightly touch on the idea of baptism in the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'm going to lightly touch on that. I'm also going to tell you that this coming week, uh, the pastoral team is going to get together and we're going to produce some videos because we know that this is a monumental task to try to accomplish all this stuff in one message, but it raises several different issues. And so we like to address those. And so look for those videos coming out sometime this week. I'll just lightly touch on this in a moment. But lastly is this, and that is that baptism matters. You'll see in the New Testament church that water baptism as a demonstration of that I've been baptized into Christ and the church acknowledges that has taken place is very important. It's very important to the New Testament church. And so here we go. I'm going to walk you through a number of salvation experiences because it's going to help shape us understanding who is saved and what it takes to be saved. So as I mentioned, chapter 2 begins with this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and people are speaking in tongues. Like I mentioned that there was a festival taking place, and that means that there are Jews from a variety of countries surrounding Jerusalem that have come for this festival. Meaning that their number one language, their primary language, is probably not Aramaic. It's not right there, but it's probably something else. And so when the Holy Spirit comes upon this group of people and they begin speaking in tongues, they're speaking the languages of those who are attending, and people are going, wait a second, how do they know my language? As you can imagine, this whole experience attracts a huge crowd. And they're trying to figure out what is going on. Peter says, I'm going to take full advantage of this, being led by the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to share with you what essentially is the very first gospel evangelistic message about Jesus. And he launches in and explains what's happening. And then it turns into a proclamation of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 36 tells us at the very end that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this, Jews, this Jesus whom you've crucified. So, verse 37, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? There's a conviction of sin. There's a sense in the gospels begin to penetrate their hearts. And they say, What must we do? And so Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
What we see in this, this short explanation that comes from Peter is somewhat of a pattern that is supposed to take place that we'll see happen over and over and over again. It's going to look different almost every single time. But there's some fundamental principles in each one of these that we're supposed to grab a hold of. The first one is this. It is, what is the individual's responsibility? The person who's heard the gospel, they've got to respond. Here it says, repent. Other places it might say, believe. But that's just kind of like the other side of the same coin. It's repent is to turn from whatever you're trusting in and to believe in Jesus. So it's kind of like the same side, just a different way of expressing the same coin there. But then there's this interesting phrase when Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. Which kind of like is really interesting because it just launches right into what the responsibility of the church is in this process. There's a declaration by someone who now believes. And the church acknowledges what's taken place and said, you need to be baptized. You know, we don't baptize ourselves. You know, you know, we get baptized. The church does that. But it's an acknowledgement of what you have said has happened to you, which if you've been united with Christ, you've been baptized into Christ, and so therefore we're just gonna we're gonna baptize you. Because we acknowledge what's taking place. And so what's interesting is that if you would just take this particular passage and nowhere else you saw a salvation message and response, you might be inclined to think that you must be baptized to be saved. Probably some of you kind of go, well, yeah. I mean, because the language, listen to this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It sounds like you've got to do that. But like I said, uh, the fifth one is that baptism matters, and it's because it's always in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, you'll see, it just accompanies. They just go right together. As soon as someone proclaims Christ, what happens is they get baptized. Because the church says, we see what's happened. It's time to get baptized. And so it's like lumped together in one single event. Then lastly, so we got the individual. Then we have the church. Then lastly, we have, what's the responsibility of God? What does God do? And it says, and you will receive, sorry, the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's what God does is when there's faith in Christ, he sends his spirit, and person's changed. Okay. I'm going to walk us through the expansion of the church into new people groups. And we're going to take a look and say, what's happening? Is this, is this what's taking place? Do these three things are there? Interestingly, many times the book of Acts might just say, and they believed, or, and the Lord added to their number daily. But when Luke decides to elaborate and spend a lot of time on the salvation experience, there's always just, let's look for these three things to take place. Let's jump to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is now Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It's It's the story of the Samaritans getting the gospel. Now, this guy named Philip, he is one of the seven identified in chapter 6. Uh, he's not one of the apostles, but one of the, the seven that is to help um, in the distribution of food to those widows that were being neglected. They're, they had identified that. 
and there's a description of the men full of the spirit and things like this. And we have Stephen in chapter seven, and then we have the persecution in chapter eight, right at the beginning. And so Philip shows up in Samaria. Let's read this. Chapter eight, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news of about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down, listen to this, and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right. Now we've got some confusing stuff going on here. Because it looks like they've believed, says they believed the words of Philip. They get baptized. So why haven't they received the Holy Spirit? Good question. Because if we look at, like I said, take Acts chapter 2, there's some things in there that we kind of go, ah, does that mean we have to be baptized to be saved? Okay, so then if that's the case, then do they need to have the laying on of hands to be saved? Now, again, if we take this only in isolation and not address that and this and this and several other stories, we might conclude incorrectly about what's going on here. Because, again, the argument has been that, well, something's new group, people group are being are coming to Christ, so therefore representatives from the church must show up and acknowledge this, and then they get the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that's the case. I believe Peter and John show up and they realize something's not quite right. I would argue what's taking place is that their faith is falls short. You go, well, why wouldn't Luke tell us that? It'd be much easier if he just told us that. I believe he does. Take a look again. He says they believed Philip as he preached, and then verse 13, even Simon himself believed. So the Samaritans have a belief, and Simon's belief is very much like their belief. But then what happens is this. Again, there's times we proclaim something. There's sometimes we act like Christians, but God's Spirit has not yet changed us or a person. And so an event takes place which signals this. Jump down now to, after the laying on the hands, they receive the Holy Spirit in verse 17, 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Listen to this strong language. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. This is condemning language. This is language where Peter says, you know, now I see what's really in your heart. Now I see this, and I know you are not a follower of Christ. I see now what's really going on. He borrows language, like I said, from the Old Testament, which is condemning language. And so that's why we can see 
that these three things are important to the new church to say, is that taking place? Let's jump to chapter 10. Brand new people group. The gospel now is going to go to the Gentiles, which is even a greater jump than the Samaritans. Through some miraculous things, events, God calls Peter to jump down from his roof, to go and follow Gentiles, to show up at a Gentile house, Cornelius. He's a centurion with the uh, Roman army. And his house is full of people waiting to hear this message. And as they hear this message, listen to this, chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exulting God. So we have the proclamation of the message and they're receiving the word and the Holy Spirit has come upon them. So what's missing? Baptism. So, what does, Paul, or what does Peter say? At the end of 46, then Peter declares, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And just to make sure we get this point, Luke says, I'm going to tell you what happened when Peter reported this event while going back to the church of Jerusalem. He says, this is what happened. So in chapter 11, we have Peter's report of what just took place. And he says in verse 15, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. Acts chapter 1 tells us what the beginning was, right? Just at the beginning. So he says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the beginning. What else do we know about the beginning? Verse 17, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. We have this thing we see over and over again. There is true faith and repentance that leads to the Spirit of God coming upon people. Acknowledgement by the church, we see what has taken place. Acknowledgement by the individual, a declaration, and they get baptized. That's the pattern. And so that's why, over and over again, we see the church going, is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in that person's life? So let's jump really quickly down to same chapter, verse 22. This is a story about Antioch. Antioch is in some, uh, Syria, modern-day Syria. And we have what is looks like to be the first intentional. I'm not saying Peter wasn't intentional, but he had to be dragged to that. The first intentional of sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And we don't even know the names of the people who did it. But they show up, and verse 21 tells us that a great number who believed turned to the Lord. 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. What's he going to look for? He's going to look for those three things, right? Is there belief? They've been baptized? 
Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit? Like I explained, sometimes Luke will kind of rush through that and only give us a glimpse of this. But I love how he says it this way. And he goes to see whether God has moved in their lives through his spirit. And he says this. When he came, he saw the grace of God. And probably the one thing I want you to grab a hold of today is maybe you're doing some self-examination. Am I a follower of Jesus or somebody I love is a follower of Jesus? It might be easy to, at this point in time, of what has already been described, looking for a gift of tongues or prophecy. But we know from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that not everybody gets those gifts. But we do see this. There's evidence of the grace of God. Someone who's been moved by the Holy Spirit, there's evidence of the grace of God. So what does that mean, evidence of the grace of God? When he saw the grace of God. You can probably figure it out. What's the grace of God? The grace of God is salvation through Christ and what he's done. Bringing new life to individuals. There's a sense of my own sin and need for a savior. And so I acknowledge Christ. There's a newness of, because of being forgiven and, and finding freedom in Christ. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. No one ever will be on this planet. But it does mean, you know, when I sin, I wrestle with it, I struggle with it, and I want to confess it. And it means I'm dependent upon Jesus, and I know that to be true. My salvation is dependent on him. Believe it or not, we're about to get to the passage of the focus of today. Make you nervous? Yes. Okay, very good. Okay, chapter 18. Don't worry. We'll go through this pretty quickly because you're already there. Chapter 18. Verse 24 through 19.7. My question kind of is, which one are you? 24 starts off this way. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandria, came to Ephesus. So what's going to happen right now is that I'm going to read to you through the end of 18. There's going to be this very large in your Bible, 1.9. Okay? New chapter. Right? Just remember, when... The scriptures are written. There was no numbers, chapters, and verses and things like that. Someone came along and decided that's an end of a thought. We're starting a new thought. I don't think that's the way it should be looked at. As a matter of fact, you'll see what I say is that I think what happens is in, in Ephesus with Apollos is being compared with, with Ephesus and some disciples. You'll see it. So, he was in, so Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. I'll probably speak up loud with the train going by. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. When he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, Sorry, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's the area where Athens and Corinth is, he ends up in Corinth. When he wants to go across there, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay. Now, let's compare this with some disciples, and you'll see similarities and contrasts. 
And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, let's remember about Paulus, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Same location. There he found some, some disciples. They, the word term disciple, makes it sound like they are with the other believers. So they appear to be Christians. And he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? In other words, he's acting like a discerning man trying to figure out, are they really believers? We see that you acknowledge this belief and you have been baptized, but something's not quite right. They seem to be on their way, but not yet there. And so, and they said, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, and so then what were you baptized? What did you acknowledge that you got this John's baptism? Well, that's what he says. They said, into John's baptism. And then Paul says, wait a second, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. But he's telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that it's Jesus. So that's where your faith should resign. Doctrine matters. Believe in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Have I mentioned the video yet this week? Have I? Okay. This laying on of hands. I'm sorry. It's the fifth time I've said this. No, it's not. Um, this week we're going to be addressing also in one of those videos the laying out of hands because that, that's important here, um, but time is limited. So here we go. That's very important, but nevertheless, looking at what's taking place, we can kind of make a comparison between Apollos and some disciples. And up on the screen you'll see this. This parallel. As you look at the scriptures, you'll see Luke is laying out for us a comparison and a contrast. The first one is this. Apollos, he'd been taught about Jesus. He knew the way of Jesus accurately, it says. And to some disciples, we surmise because they're called disciples that there's a claim of following Jesus. Maybe they actually sat in chairs at a church service. Apollos and some disciples both knew only of John's baptism and been baptized only into John's baptism. Both of them needed further instruction. Priscilla and Aquila come alongside Apollos and say, you know what? They taught him the way of God more accurately. Now, let's go a little bit deeper. Clearly, when Paul asks the question, have you, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? They need to get more. There is... No mention of the lack of Holy Spirit, the question raised for Apollos. But we see from the some disciples, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Once again, Apollos, he received more accurate instruction, but the some disciples, what's the immediate important thing that needs to take place? They had a taught to believe in the one that John was pointing towards, believe in Jesus. What happens with Apollos, he receives an endorsement Letters written, receive this guy. And he immediately gets into teaching others. Where clearly that's not the case with some disciples. What happens for them is that they end up being baptized in the name of Jesus where the apostle never takes place. And then he received the Holy Spirit through the laying out of hands. So as I've walked through this, I ask, why did that take place? Why the difference between Apollos and some disciples? 
Paulus, who's a believer, he'd been changed by the Holy Spirit. Some disciples, not yet. Had happened, not yet. There was evidence of the Holy Spirit in, in the Apollos' life. It says he was full of the fervent in spirit, and he knew the way of Jesus. Not the evidence of the Holy Spirit in some disciples' life. And let me just pause here to say this. Paul writes the, the, the first letter to the Corinthians that we have during his time right now while he's in Ephesus. And so he comes and approaches these disciples because what's going through his brain, this is what's going on inside of him. He's writing to the first Corinthians, uh, the Corinthians, and he says in chapter 12, verse 13, this is very important for you to grab hold of, and this is why he asked that question of those disciples. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. If you're a believer, you've been baptized into one body by the Spirit. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. A couple years later, he's going to write to the Romans and say, essentially, if someone does not have the Spirit of God, he's not, he does not belong to God. Romans 8, 9. So he asked that question. And so what does Apollos need? He needed follow-up discipling. He had somebody to invest in him to help him take that next step. But what did the disciples, the some disciples need? They needed the message of Jesus clarified and given to him. They needed evangelism. So let me go back to the five things that I pointed out before, the five things that matter from this passage. Number one, baptism matters. You see from this quick overview that water baptism is very important to the New Testament church, so it must be important to us. If that's something that you have not done yet and you claim Christ, we encourage you to consider that importance. And we actually have a document out on the information table about our belief in baptism and how important it is. You can dig deeper into that. Number four, understand the work of the Holy Spirit does matter. So I'm going to throw up a, um, a graphic up on there. And I want to just highlight a couple of different things because we're going to address this in those videos as well. So we can, um, Crystal, if you can throw that next graphic up there. You see, what happens is that when we understand the teaching of the, of the book of Acts, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit as opposed to being filled with the Holy Spirit, we see there's a difference. We see language being used about baptism and being filled. And the reality is that we need to comprehend that. Because when it gets backwards, it can actually do damage. When we believe that God is going to do something for us that never takes place, because we've been misguided in that, it brings harm to our own walk with Christ. But you have been given everything you need for life and godliness. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness. But we need to kind of look at what that looks like. Number three, discipleship does matter. Everyone needs someone to invest in them. And it may be that you need to ask someone, when you invest in me? Because everyone needs someone to ask them the tough questions. Number two, doctrine matters. You see example after example that people have kind of got part of the gospel, but not the whole thing. So everyone needs the gospel clearly explained to them. And last, this is where I want to end. Evidence of salvation matters. 
So my question is, have you been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit? Paul tells us, or actually commands this, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And that's what I want you to do. 